I'm Panayota Pimenidou, and this is the Global Greek Influence Podcast. To be up to date with news from the Global Greek Influence Podcast and suggest your topics, subscribe, like, and review the Global Greek Influence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM, and four more podcasting platforms. You can contact the Global Greek Influence through the podcast, Facebook, and Twitter accounts, the podcast website, globalgreekinfluence.com and LinkedIn page. Today, I'm with Marius Kutsukos, the first guest of the Global Greek Influence podcast, a fiction author and a PhD candidate in history of religions in the late antiquity at the University of Liverpool. Marius is a history enthusiast and lifelong scholar as a fiction author, a graduate of the National and Capodistrian University of Athens in the French language and literature, and a Master of Arts holder in Creative Writing from the Hellenic Open University. Marius is not new to the Global Greek Influence podcast, as he was my first guest in the episode Battles in History and Life No Regrets, and in the episode Beyond Time and Technology. Later on, in December last year, Marius and I met again for the episode The Past Defines Us, The Romans and Propaganda versus the Hellenes Parts 1 and 2, and this year, actually on the 14th of February, for the 200 years from the 1821 War of Independence of the Hellenes episode. Welcome back to the show, Marie. Well met, Panagiota. It's a pleasure to be here and it's always, uh, it feels like home. It is always a pleasure to have you back to the show and thank you for your nice words. It feels as if not a single day has passed What you and I tend to do in all the episodes I had invited you is to attempt to connect the past with the present and the future, but always leaving space for the audience to make their own deductions. Oh yes, and I believe today's topic uh, will uh, give us plenty of space to do some very interesting and sometimes daring and bold dot connects. I have to confess that I thought of asking you to return to the podcast for this episode due to the feeling I have that after one and a half year in the pandemic, as a society, we are getting backwards based on the other science movement and what liberties in a democratic or liberal society mean. Based on these conservative approaches, we talked at the podcast in the past year about populism History and philosophy, on the other hand, are tools we forget to use. When we read history, we notice discontinuities of governance either by one empire or state taking over the governance of another or the governors and governance types changing. But possibly the people who lived at those times might have not noticed such disruptions or discontinuities between governance types as they lived through the transitions and changes. I'm not sure how people thought in the past, but today people strongly believe that the politicians are corrupt and that the politicians corrupt people, their lives and societies. Today with Marius, Marie, we are going to discuss if political choices and decisions by the governors were theirs or if politics and decision-making was based on principles of faith, how public opinions were formed and if public opinions influenced governance or the reverse happened. 
In a sense, do politicians follow the crowd to maintain unity or coherence within a society? And then in the distant future, like us now, we see in history political decisions as corrupt by the governance. Marius will help us see the context of the eternal relationship between governance and the citizens through the spectrum of the transition of the Roman Empire to Byzantium and how the Eastern Roman emperor's decisions as a result of the demands of the society led to the different Middle Ages at the Eastern Roman Empire compared to the rest of Europe. Uh, of course, I will do my best to connect all these things. And thank you very much for this uh, quite challenging question. There's no easy answer to it, but we'll take it one step at a time. So I think we'll figure it out. First of all, um, this transition that you spoke of from, let's say, antiquity or what could be termed as classical antiquity, the more pristine antiquity of uh, Plato and Aristotle, the later successors of these schools, into Byzantium, is uh, not as straightforward and clear-cut as, uh, you know, as that. For instance, let's begin with uh, the term Byzantium, which is a problematic term. We do use it uh, in order, you know, to... Um, uh, designate a certain period of the Roman Empire, but uh, in truth, uh, the, the very word Byzantium was coined in the 16th century by the uh, German historian Hieronymus Wolf. So he used this term to uh, designate the Roman Empire of the East. Uh, from an anemic perspective, the Byzantines were basically Romans. Christianized Romans. Uh, so there was a continuity of the Roman Empire that had just transitioned from paganism to uh, Christianity. Now, the key uh, point in this transition, in my opinion, is uh, the period of the late antiquity, uh, especially the uh, late third, fourth, and fifth to sixth century. Uh, I mean, that's where the transition starts to happen, the late 3rd century, and in the mid-6th century it is cemented uh, and Christianity finally wins, uh, you know, once and for all. Now, uh, to return to your question, how, how these things happened, it's a bit difficult, and that's why your question is to the point, it's a bit difficult to actually say that it was one thing that caused this transition. Uh, was it the will of the people expressed by the emperors, or was it the will of the emperors uh, imposed on the people? It was a little bit of both, to be honest. I mean, um, first of all, we have to look at the philosophical milieu of that period. In that uh, period, the uh, philosophical schools, the, the prevalent philosophical school would be Neoplatonism. All the philosophers, uh, what we would term today scientists, the men of learning who had actual, you know, who taught in schools in the, let's say, university schools of the time, uh, they subscribed to one form of another or another of Neoplatonism. Uh, that sort of Neoplatonism was also, you know, infused with Stoicism, Epicureanism, and all that. But let's, you know, just for simplicity's sake, uh, term everything, put it under the umbrella term of Neoplatonism. Uh, 
that that was the learning, uh, the, the learned men, the uh, intelligentsia of, the, of society that subscribed to this uh, notion. Now uh, you have the emergence of many new faiths and new cults, Christianity being uh, the most prominent one. But of course, Christianity was not uniform. Uh, you have many different Christianities. For instance, uh, at least in terms of the first couple of centuries up until the third century, you have two basic sects of Christians. The Judean converts to Christianity, uh, usually being Ebionites or some other sect, you know, being uh, converts from Judaism to Christianity. And you have the Hellenes, the Greek pagans, uh, by the term Greek, we don't mean just the uh, their national identity, but mostly their cultural background. There would be they could be Syrians, they could be uh, Egyptians, they could be Armenians, but they all had a Neoplatonic Greek learning. So. In Christianity, you have uh, quite a variety of sects, like the Gnostics, the Novatians, uh, the Ebionites, as we um, mentioned earlier, and countless other sects that uh, contend with one another. And at the same time, they contend with paganism. For instance, Plotinus does have a lot to say against the Gnostics. Uh, he really uh, doesn't like the Gnostics and finds their ideas uh, preposterous. However, uh, as long as uh, the idea of the academy exists in the Roman world, especially during the late antiquity, uh, all these sort of, uh, let's say, talks and philosophical carfaffles, if you will, uh, do take place within the walls of academia. Uh, even in paganism, there is no coherent and uniform dogma. There are uh, many uh, oppositions. I mean, for instance, uh, Damascus has quite a lot of objections on Proclus. He basically obsessively refutes every position of Proclus. And in Christianity, you do have uh, some of the uh, learned fathers like uh, Origen who uh, refutes the positions of uh, pagan philosophers or uh, other Christians who, whom he deems heretics. Or I can give even another example of Porphyry, who questions Iamblichus on how magic works, what's the philosophy behind magic. So there's a lot of dialogue in that period, a lot of questioning of uh, the other person's uh, beliefs, the other person's um, uh, approach on reality. But all that takes place within the walls of academia, through letters, through pamphlets. Uh, so it's relatively civilized. Now, when Christianity, um, let's say, attains a critical mass in society, and that sort of debate is given to the general masses, now that's where things start to become hairy. And, of course, you can understand in that in that scenario, the uh, state power, and we'll talk about that later on, uh, the, the position that uh, the emperor and his courtiers, his uh, governors, local governors and officials take, does influence heavily the scales of that uh, previously civilized debate. When philosophy was no longer a pursuit of men living in the independent democratic polis, it was thought to have declined by comparison of the eras of philosophy of Plato and Aristotle to that of Zeno, of Citium, and Epicurus. You've also mentioned a few non-Greek philosophers, as in the case of the first century CE, 
when we see that philosophy is practiced and developed by Philo of Alexandria to Iamblichus of Apamia, in whose hands the Greek discipline responded to new cultures, both their own, in this case Jewish and Syrian, and those they encountered around them. Then we have the rise, to which you referred to, of monotheistic religions and their attempts to mirror themselves in the metaphysics of Plato. Could one say that we start seeing then the end of philosophy from its original roots and causation, or was it a continuum of philosophy into a transforming society and human history? Uh, that is actually a very good question and quite a valid point that is under debate by uh, many scholars uh, uh, currently. I mean, there is such a term as pagan monotheism uh, going around and we'll explain that in a bit. So uh, basically what um, what was going on, uh, the, uh, the basic characteristic of philosophical thought in late antiquity would be syncretism. Syncretism is the combination of foreign elements into a new synthesis that is uh, at the same time uh, like a quilt of various cultures and various ideas. It's highly eclectic, but it is original as well. So, uh, for instance, the Platonism of Iamblichus is old and at the same time new. In the same way, since this was the prevalent, the modus operandi of science in late antique society, inevitably that bled through also to the thinkers of Christianity. If you want my opinion, if it wasn't for Neoplatonism, there wouldn't be any theology in Christianity because you know, in, in Christianity, that's a personal opinion, uh, you have uh, the theology that is totally different from, you know, the religious aspect, the apocalyptic aspect. These are two different things. Uh, so the theology that is uh, concocted and uh, elaborated on during the first uh, centuries, well, from the first, second, up until the fourth, uh, with all the... Uh, let's say, celebrated church fathers, that owes its uh, rhetoric, its vocabulary, its thinking process exactly to the same processes that the, pagans philosopher, the pagan philosophers used, uh, and especially to Neoplatonism. Now, the actual end of uh, traditional philosophy can be traced to the uh, closure of the Athenian school, of the Athenian Academy in 529 by Emperor Justinian, by decree of Emperor Justinian, uh, when uh, Damascus, the successor, the so-called successor, was head of the Platonic Academy. Now, this happened during um, a long period of persecution and censure of uh, traditional ways. It wasn't something that came out of, of the blue. I mean, it, uh, it was the outcome of a gradual process of the shrinking and curtailing of philosophical thought, but when it finally came, it came as a political maneuver, let's say. What Damascus was doing in Athens in uh, the first half of the 6th century was reorganizing the school, the philosophical school of Athens, um, and trying, in his opinion, to, to create an orthodoxy, a continuity of dogma for pagan belief, for Hellenic belief, uh, especially based according to the principles of Iamblichus. That also brought the city of Athens back to its prominence, um, because the city of Athens in uh, the 6th century was 
you know, a backwater province of the empire. It wasn't the celebrated Athens of the 5th century BC. It was, uh, you know, a secondary university city of the empire, let's say. So Damascus brings this city back into prominence it, uh, by rejuvenating uh, its academy and bringing into it teachers from all over the empire, uh, not just Greeks, but you know, uh, Syrians and from uh, celebrated teachers like Asclepiodos from uh, Emesa and uh, from uh, Beirut and all the big intellectual centers of the uh, wider Near Eastern Mediterranean. He restores the glory of Athens. Now, Justinian does see that as a threat, as a threat to uh, the centrality of Constantinople, perhaps, or perhaps as a threat to Christianity, to the predominance of Christianity. However, earlier on in uh, the 480s, we have uh, the celebrated school of Horapollo in Alexandria. Now, the uh, school of Horapollo in Alexandria is pretty much one of the most celebrated academies where you find Christians and pagans alike studying side by side and often having uh, very fruitful or sometimes very heated debates about issues of philosophy. So in terms of what you said, uh, the final collapse of uh, philosophy can be traced, you know, at the closure of the Athenian school in the 6th century, but it was a gradual process of uh, school after school reaching a peak and then declining for various reasons. For instance, the school of Horapolo that we mentioned finally closed down in the 490s after um, a certain incident um, happened between a student and a Christian student, a pagan student. They had a little feud. The uh, Christian student uh, being uh, incited by his brother who was a monk uh, came into the school on a Friday the, when the uh, uh, readers were missing, most of the professors were out, so it was just the teachers of philosophy going in. Uh, he made quite a fuss about it. Uh, he was being blasphemous towards the gods and he was being very ironic towards um, a certain pupil there uh, because he had learned that um, one of his teachers had prayed to Isis for a miracle because his wife was barren. He was beseeching Isis for a child. And he had learned from his brother, the monk, that uh, after visiting the shrine of Isis, uh, they had just been given a baby by the priestess of Isis. So whether or not this is uh, true, because it comes from a Christian source, so you know we have to take it with a grain of salt, a little incident uh, was created there. Yeah, we, we have to keep in mind that we're talking about a living, evolving society uh, where there is no homogeneity. There are not two clear-cut camps, but battle lines are indeed drawn between uh, the Christians and the pagans and sometimes even between the pagans and between the Christians themselves. This dynamic of interchanging, jumping from one faith to the other, from one philosophy to the other, creating a mosaic was just a characteristic of the turbulent times that were late antiquity. And now the bridge to people repeating history in a different context. Logos was abandoned, forming a different society that led to the Byzantine Empire and emperors to lead various administrative, financial, social, and military reforms to strengthen their empire. Constantine the Great was the first who did all this. He built a new imperial residence at Byzantium and renamed the city Constantinople, or else known as the New Rome, 
but he also played an influential role in the development of Christianity as a religion of the empire, not only in recognizing it as an official religion before his death. This is what we read in history, but we do not see as much of how the public opinion was formed around the new religion, Christianity, and if this influenced the entirety of the transition governance towards the realization of Byzantine Empire, or did the opposite happen? That is uh, an excellent point, and uh, actually the uh, a contested point among uh, scholars today. But the figure of Constantine is uh, quite remarkable. Uh, that I would uh, suggest to anyone interested to read the book, The Roman Revolution of Constantine by Raymond Dunn, uh, an excellent book. And to quote him, uh, he says that not even Jesus Christ could have prophesied that uh, a Roman emperor would become a Christian. So uh, the ascent of Constantine the first on the throne and his adoption of Christianity, not the imposition of the Christian faith, but uh, a pro-Christian emperor on the throne was quite a shock to Roman society. That it was quite a huge game changer. Uh, but having said that, uh, Constantine the Great never actually uh, imposed Christianity as the official religion of the state. Uh, he was more of a moderate. He wanted to uh, please everybody, both Christians and pagans. It is, of course, true that uh, in the 4th century, in the early 4th century, with the Edict of Milan, uh, preceded by the Edict of, Edict of Toleration, he does uh, set uh, the um, he, he sets the stage for a much more tolerant Roman religion. But in the founding of uh, Constantinople, of the new Rome, of the new capital, the city of Constantine, we see Constantine building um, in his forum uh, the uh, the Stele of Constantine, the the red marble that is called today the Burned Column, the Burned Pillar. Uh, it's still extant to this day. And on top of that pillar, he places a huge uh, statue of Apollo probably um, loaned, let's say, from uh, somewhere else, uh, that according to tradition, this statue of Apollo held in its hands a sphere uh, where uh, uh, crosses, uh, nails from the true cross of Christ had been melted. At the bottom of this pillar, there was a chapel uh, wherein uh, was placed the, um, the crown of thorns that was uh, on Christ's head, uh, the basket from the miracle of Christ where he multiplied by the bread and the fishes, and also the palladium, the, palladium, the wooden, the very ancient wooden statue of Athena from the Acropolis in Athens. So I'm referring to this just to show the, the approach of Constantine towards the merging of these cultures. Uh, imagine a chapel where you have Christian relics alongside with the most holy relic of the pagan world, the Palladium of Athena. And that was uh, pretty much a, a chapel where for 700 years under that statue of Apollo and in front of that chapel with the Palladium and uh, all those other relics, Christian services were held in um, memory of uh, the Emperor Constantine for a period of at least 700 years until the statue was toppled and was replaced by a cross. This gives us an idea of how the new Rome was a, a rather tolerant melting pot of various religions and various philosophical creeds and philosophical approaches. 
However, uh, the fact that an emperor did espouse uh, the Christian faith, uh, just as Constantine did allegedly at the end of his life, and most definitely all his successors did, the, the rest of the Flavian dynasty, with the exception of Julian, uh, being the last of the Flavian dynasty, there must be some sort of irony there. Uh, but um, the fact that uh, Christianity was espoused means that if central authority espoused a certain philosophical uh, conception and a certain ideology and a religion, because religion and philosophy do tend to, to walk a parallel path, especially at that time. So that fact meant that all people who wanted to ingrace themselves and uh, become favorites of the emperor would have to espouse the same ideology, the same philosophy. And also you have a lot of um, uh, regional magistrates who are, you know, uh, embracing the new faith because it's, uh, let's say, fashionable at the time. Uh, and that can be seen also in the case of uh, Theodosius I, where um, Theodosius is um, uh, very much uh, accredited with many distractions of uh, temples and all that, which is not exactly the case. But his magistrates, uh, being fervent Christians and wishing to please a Christian emperor, do perpetrate a lot of systematic distraction. So uh, just, uh, just hinting at this uh, to say that when central authority has a certain ideology, uh, it becomes very easy for uh, or the rest of the hierarchy to follow that, uh, that ideology. Uh, but we see that today, like secularism. Today is the leading norm for governments, right? So people do tend to embrace secularism more easily. Uh, and so you, you can't really say that, you know, the people were opposed to the philosophical approaches towards religion of authority, nor that authority, say, imposed its philosophy on the masses. So it's more of a um, uh, communicating vessels kind of situation. As you said, Constantine gave space to a new religion just to please part of his um, Roman Empire citizens. And Theodosius acted pretty similarly. And now we reach the times of Emperor Theodosius, who suppressed non-Christian religions. I will never call them pagan, which I find a demeaning term, and Arianism. How and why do we get to that point of no return to the plurality of religions in the empire? I totally agree with you, Panagiotta. The, the term pagan is really problematic. I don't really like it myself. I would say that a term like ethnikos and ethnikoi would be much more fitting or uh, Hellenes, uh, if you will. That, but we just use the word, the term pagan, just as we use the term Byzantine for uh, general convenience. But indeed, uh, there should be a much better term for that in history, although there's no consensus on that as of yet. Now, when it comes to Theodosius, uh, indeed, he is the person who, uh, he's the emperor who actually signs the Edict of Thessalonica. Now, the Edict of Thessalonica is the actual edict that uh, makes Christianity the official religion of the state. So, um, this becomes the religio of the Roman state uh, in 380. Of course, this is signed by Theodosius. Uh, 
I want to read you the text of that edict. Uh, actually, it's really interesting be, because it says, we order the followers of this law, the imposition of uh, Christianity as the official religion, to embrace the name of Catholic Christians. But as for others, in our judgment, they are foolish madmen, we decree that they shall be branded with the ignominious name of heretics and shall not presume to give to their conventicles the name of churches. So basically, uh, with this edict, uh, you said, uh, the emperor decrees that anyone who is not, anyone, everybody must uh, take on the title of Catholic Christian. And Catholic, the term Catholic means universal. It means uh, accepted by all. Therefore, what the Roman state under Theodosius is trying to do is say that this philosophy, uh, the Christian philosophy, is recognized by all as the one sole truth, the, the purpose of philosophy, the ultimate goal of all philosophy. Uh, it is, in a sense, the perennial philosophy, and therefore it must be embraced by everybody. Anybody who doesn't is a foolish madman. So there's even a, a connotation there that it's unreasonable not to be a Christian. And, of course, uh, in that edict we see the first the big... Um, uh, censure against uh, heretics. Now, in the case of Theodosius, it is true that uh, a lot of destructions uh, of ancient temples were carried out in his time, but although it is, it must be said that uh, historians agree that Theodosius wasn't as much dedicated to the violent destruction of temples, he actually decreed that all the temples that could be converted into public buildings should remain intact, but uh, for instance, um, we have his uh, prelate in uh, in the East, Kinegius, uh, who is a really fervent Christian, and he did carry out uh, systematic destruction of temples. And, you know, sometimes it wasn't easy to destroy these ancient and very well-built megalithic sometimes edifices. Uh, so quite a lot of effort was uh, exercised by Kinegius. Of course, Kinegius was just a local governor, but on the pretext of uh, imperial authority and empowered by the, by the Edict of Thessalonica, and aided by the local, uh, the numerous local Christian populations, did uh, you know assail all these uh, ancient monuments and destroy them. At the given time, uh, we have to look again, as I mentioned earlier, we have to look at its case uh, on an individual basis because you know in some towns, in some regions, the temples were really in, had fallen into disrepair; they were abandoned. Uh, the Christian populations were rising, uh, so. So a destruction of a temple could have been a matter of no consequence to the local population, could have been more like, um, let's destroy the old to bring out the new. In other situations, there were quite heavy and serious clashes between different uh, groups where the pagan communities were still numerous and vibrant. Uh, there they did clash with uh, 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 the Christian population who was empowered by imperial authority and by the interpretation of the Edict of Thessaloniki uh, and uh, the interpretation of uh, uh, the imperial will to create churches and to crush heretics, let alone uh, pagans. Uh, so perhaps we can see not so much as a um, uh, violent, let's say, or aggressive imperial policy, but rather 
an excuse given to the populace, to the unrestful populace, and to ambitious local governors to exercise tyrannical power. I mean, that could be, in many cases, the the most clear-cut explanation for all the destruction that did indeed happen during uh, the reign, especially during the reign of Theodosius, but also in during the reign of many other emperors as well. Even though the Roman Emperor Constantine, as we discussed before, legalized Christianity in 312 CE, it was not until Theodosius I, who ruled between 379 CE to 395 CE, that Christianity became the official religion of both the East and West Roman Empire. Why and how did it take almost 70 years for this transition? The answer to this question might seem obvious to many, but it's not so obvious from an objective point of view. Who said that because of the unrest, an entire empire had to follow one religion only? Uh, indeed, indeed. I mean, it's not as easy to transition from one religio, one state religion to another. And let it be said that, uh, you know, the Roman Empire had always been rather tolerant of different religions. Of course, we have um, pagan and pagan persecutions with the... Um, uh, the, the mayors, let's say, of Rome uh, persecuting the cult of Isis, uh, persecuting Christians, and then uh, Christians persecuting pagans. Everything had had already been on the stage of... Uh, all possible combinations had passed through the stage of religious persecution in Roman society. However, the Roman idea was that uh, the gods of Rome, the, uh, state, the gods of the state religion, be they Jupiter or Jesus Christ, were the reigning gods. Therefore, all other gods, everything else, if you paid tribute to the reigning gods, you could, uh, you know, worship at your leisure It's uh, any other god you liked. That's why also when, let's say, Rome conquered Egypt, they uh, had a triumph, and they, in the, during the triumph they brought prisoners, and they also brought prisoners, uh, as prisoners, the statues of the Egyptian gods, you know, to, to signify that the gods of Rome were supreme, they were victorious, but... You know, the, Egyptians got, the Egyptian gods were also gods, and you could worship them if you like, but of course, first and foremost, you had paid tribute to the gods of Rome. Now, with the advent of Christianity uh, during uh, the reign of Theodosius and the establishment of Christianity as a religio, as a state religion, there you have to recognize one god, uh, the Christianity as a state religion. However, the philosophy of Christianity does not allow for pluralism, does not allow for any other gods to exist. Therefore, when we, when Christianity is established as the religio licita, the legal religion of uh, the Roman state, due to its nature, it excludes all other religions. In uh, 380, with uh, the Edict of Thessalonica, we have uh, a shift from this a traditional tolerance of the Roman Empire into a more intolerant uh, kind of situation because uh, it does not allow for any other gods. It's in the nature of monotheistic religions. So on the other hand now, why did it take 70 years for that to come about? Well, uh, that sort of change uh, always comes gradually. And for instance, when uh, Constantine recognized the legitimacy of Christianity and made Christians, uh, you know, legal again, uh, he, it wasn't such an easy thing just 
he didn't just sign a piece of paper and boom, it was done. He actually had to um, recompensate those Christians who had been persecuted under Diocletian and had lost their fortunes. He recompensated them. And at the same time, because he returned to them uh, lots of land and houses, but he had to recompensate also the pagans who had confiscated these. So legalizing a religion has entails a whole lot of bureaucracy. And the Roman Empire was run on bureaucracy and um, uh, an enormous, a gigantic amount of red tape. At the same time, such changes of heart, such changes in philosophical direction do not happen overnight. Uh, even... Uh, even when Christianity was, you know, legally enforced as the religion of the empire, uh, there were still numerous cities that held on to their pagan ways and refused to actually go with this new trend. I mean, we see Christianity being enforced as a religio licita in the 4th century, yet up until at least uh, the 6th or the 7th century, we do have entire cities that are fully pagan and clinging to that. So 70 years in the bigger picture really amount to just, at least in my opinion, the, the normal amount of time it would take for uh, a holy pagan and very heterogeneous empire, uh, philosophically and religious heterogene religiously heterogeneous empire, to just cope with the changes in the state. Let us finish with the case of the populist Andronicus Komnenos, who was born around 1118, the grandson of an emperor. He was a prince, but far down in the line of succession. He rose to power in blood, causing political and economic turmoil. We are talking about a demagogue emperor. One might also characterize Andronicus Komnenos as an opportunist, and many populists and opportunists in history share the same characteristics and actions to climb up in the hierarchy of governance. How could philosophy and history study help us overcome such future repetitions? Yes, uh, that is a very good point. And although it is definitely not in my uh, field of specialization, uh, uh, Andronicus, I mean, is not in my uh, particular field, he was a, quite a fascinating figure and intriguing figure in that he was, just as you said, a, a, a violent populist. And he did achieve quite a lot in his time, although his reign was steeped in blood and massacres, and especially the massacres of the aristocracy. Now, some, in my opinion, at least uh, in my um, limited uh, idea of him, he was rather a Robespierre of his time. He imposed uh, a reign of terror, if you will, uh, with the idea of um, uh, redistributing land and uh, taking power from the aristocrats, which could have worked for an emperor. I mean, emperors were primarily primarily threatened by aristocrats and the aristocracy around them rather than the people. The people are more easily controlled, if you will, and that's, that's what's he, what history shows us. The people, the Roman uh, idea that uh, ludi et pani, uh, bread and shows, uh, bread and circuses for the populace. So this idea that populism can, con uh, a populist leader can easily control the masses is indeed something we have seen time and time again, especially in Roman history. Now, what 
a ruler has to worry about, especially a ruler like Andronicus, would be the intelligentsia, the uh, the higher ups in society, those who wield intellectual power and also political and economic power. But in terms of philosophy, the beauty, at least in my opinion, uh, the beauty of the true philosopher is that he is beholden to no man and to no ruler. He does not fall into line with uh, the fashion of the time. And that's something that's an idea we also see in Damascus. Damascus does abhor the the fashion of his time, which is to be a rhetorician. And that's why he rejects his whole career as a rhetorician and becomes a philosopher. Uh, he actually, in his um, history of philosophy, he berates uh, the rhetoricians and belittles all those who just occupy themselves with guiding the people and distorting people's opinions through rhetoric and through uh, honeyed words and all that. And he believes that a true philosopher's path is to stray away from all that, all that fashionable stuff, as he calls it, and um, uh, remain true to the goal of truth. Now, in the case of Andronicus, we see a ruler who tries to please the people by giving them what they want, uh, by being very aggressive and violent towards all those that oppose him, and in using an ideology to exterminate, literally exterminate, those that uh, dare to espouse a different philosophy or ideology than the people want. So. In the case of Andronicus, you can see a very vivid example of uh, where populism can lead without the aid and the guidance of philosophy. I think philosophy is temperance in all things. And that is why uh, I'll quote or uh, paraphrase Edward Gibbon a little bit uh, in saying that when uh, discussions about the nature of God were contained were within the walls of academia, then life went by very, uh, you know, very politely and, you know, even when the debates got heated, it never came to blows. But uh, when that debate about the nature of God and the immortality of the soul and the teleology of the human existence was given to the rude populace and manipulated by shrewd rulers who had an agenda, then uh, rivers of blood flowed on the streets of the Roman Empire. Thank you, Maria. That was an excellent final answer to this episode, simply because what we see through Andronikos Kominos is that populism has very specific terms and conditions throughout the centuries. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And indeed, the final question was the coup de grace in the whole thing. I really enjoyed it. Uh, again, thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Maria. And you know that you're always welcome to the podcast. And I would like to thank you all for staying until the end of this episode. I will be with you next Sunday.